Well, good morning, Chapel family. Good to see you this morning. Good to be here on this first day of winter, I think it is. Uh, Not officially, but just feels that way. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the book of Acts. We're in chapter 8 today, and we'll be picking it up at verse 26. Last week, the big story all over the news was that Donald Trump was elected president. This week, the big story all over the news has been about Donald Trump selecting his top aides and advisors. So I'm telling you that in case you haven't been paying attention to the news. One thing I've noticed as as I've been watching is that with every name, every face that's come forward, as they get together and meet with the president-elect, they are all smiles, they're happy and ready to come on board if they are asked, even though many of these folks that he's been meeting with have been some of his biggest critics. And I've thought about that, and, and for most of these folks, as I look at their situations, come on board the cabinet of the, for the president, it wouldn't be about uh, they need a job. It's not that, uh, because most of them, you know, it's not that they're looking to make big money because most of them already are fairly wealthy, somewhat wealthy at least. And many of them are even semi-retired. So I wonder why would they be really excited about going to work for someone they once criticized into a job that's high pressure? And why would they do that? Bottom line is because Serving the presidency, serving the country is a high calling and a great honor. And for many, they would look at it even as a sacred duty. We're in the midst of a study of the book of Acts. Looking at our mission to be Jesus' witnesses. He told us in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, a verse that hopefully many of you have memorized. For Jesus said, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus has given us a mission. We began last week at looking here in chapter 8 at one of the Lord Jesus' choice servants that He's been using in this mission. A guy by the name of Philip, one of seven men the apostles set aside to take over a benevolence ministry. Two of these guys, at least two, the others we just don't know because it doesn't say, but at least two of these men, Stephen and Philip, have become powerful preachers of the gospel. This morning as we continue looking at Philip, I want us to think as we go through and Look at this guy who was, as it were, pulled into the high levels of service, into the position of a top aide of Jesus Christ in this early church. And look at what it is that we can learn from him about those kind of folks that God chooses to use greatly for his glory and for his kingdom. The passage before us this morning records an amazing encounter between two men. And the first of these guys is Philip. Philip, the preacher that we met last week who God used to break through the barriers of culture and prejudice and carry the gospel to the Samaritans. His story continues. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that leads down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. When you think about it, it's really a rather odd order from God. Philip, I want you to leave your thriving preaching ministry in Samaria. You went there preaching to folks that no one else was going to. And large crowds have been coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And now that He's 
having this incredible ministry in Samaria, God says, leave. Pack up and I want you to go down to a place on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. He's up there in Samaria. That's where Philip is. Jerusalem is there. And then down there is Gaza. It's the old road. It's not the main road anymore. So it says it's a desert place. It's both a deserted road and it's a road that goes to the desert. Gaza was an old Philistine outpost, a Philistine fortress. By this time, it is a place that's in ruins. They built a newer city of Gaza over by the coast. This is a little farther inland, but it was the last outpost. When you left there, you were in the middle of the desert. So the closer that you get from Jerusalem to Gaza, the more desert it gets, the more desolate it gets. It's an old road and a deserted road. It's 80 miles from where Philip is up in Samaria. 80 miles on foot means you're traveling a good, hard four days on foot. You're going to get some blisters, some stub toes, sunburn. It's going to be hot. This isn't a pleasure trip. What's interesting is I note that God never even tells Philip, here's why you're going here. Here's why I want you to leave Samaria. Here's what what you're going to do when you get there. He just says, go. And I notice it just says, Philip arose and went. Apparently with no questions, no objections, no hesitations. In other words, exactly the way I wouldn't do it. And probably you either. I thought through this. I came up with at least a half a dozen different different reasons why I would want to know all the details and what God had planned because this just wouldn't fit into my schedule and my thoughts and the way I think God should do things. I don't know about you, but I tend to argue with God a lot about how He should do things. Not a good quality, by the way. There's another person in this story. There's an Ethiopian, pick it up the rest of 27. It says there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So Philip, God has called him to move from Samaria on down to this road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Meanwhile, there is an Ethiopian returning to Ethiopia. And the first leg of his journey is this road from Jerusalem to Gaza. He's traveling in a chariot. Likely he has a large entourage with him, most of them on foot. And so even though he's got a chariot, he's probably traveling at a walking pace which means that it will take them roughly two to two and a half days to travel the 50 miles from Jerusalem to Gaza. Luke tells us several things about this man. He is an Ethiopian. Basically, that just means he's from Ethiopia. A little bigger than the area we call, the country we call Ethiopia today. It's basically everything south of Egypt. But that means that he's traveled at least a thousand miles from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. It almost certainly means as well that he's a black man. Not only is he an Ethiopian, he is a eunuch. The word eunuch, the term eunuch generally refers to a man or boy who had been castrated or surgically emasculated. Some ancient cultures did this to those who were going to serve kings or queens in high and sensitive positions of authority. The thinking was that they would then not be subject to sexual temptations and sexual bribes. Thirdly, Luke tells us that he's a man of great authority. 
of great wealth. It says he's a court official for Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. Candace, by the way, isn't her name. Candace is a title like Pharaoh was for the king of Egypt. Candace was the title for the queen, the ruling queen in Ethiopia. And it says that he is in charge of all her treasure. He holds the, the purse strings for the the queen, actually for the whole nation. In Ethiopia, the king actually didn't run the country. The queen ran the country. The king served in a position where they kind of worshipped him, but she did all the work. Sounds like a lot of homes. Um, shouldn't be that way, just <laughs> not advocating that at all. Don't want to get the emails. <laughs> It's a high position. Not only is it a high position, it means he is wealthy. That shows up in the very fact that he's riding a chariot. A chariot is the first century version of a Rolls Royce. He's got a pimped out wagon. He also shows that he's wealthy simply because he has time to take at least a four-month journey to travel from Ethiopia up to Jerusalem. Go back. And his wealth shows up in that he has, it says here, that he is reading a scroll of Isaiah. See, to have a scroll like this is something only the most elite could ever dream of having. So expensive, so valuable was such a scroll. It was the ultimate souvenir to take home from Jerusalem. He got a scroll of Isaiah. Let's us know as well that he is a religious man. It says here that he went to Jerusalem and he went there to worship. Luke doesn't tell us exactly what, what this man's status is in terms of his relation to, to Israel, his relationship to God. It doesn't say whether he is a Jew, perhaps an Ethiopian Jew, or maybe he was a proselyte, a Gentile who became a Jew, or maybe a just a God-fearer or a seeker, someone who knows of God and is seeking and trying to learn. Luke doesn't give us any of that information, but he's obviously, he came to worship. He has some concern and some fear and some reverence for God. And enough that he bought a scroll of Isaiah and he's been reading, he's been studying the scroll. Verse 29, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and he, and he asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? I love this. Philip is there. He gets in the region, in the area of where he's supposed to be. He doesn't know why he's there, but he sees this chariot apparently. And, and the Spirit says to him, now go. Go to the chariot. And I love this. Philip runs. <laughs> Probably a ways off, gets the instruction. He just takes off running. Philip is not one to wait around. He's not a guy to just look and wait and see what happens. He engages. Just like he went up to Samaria and he engages Samaritans. Here, says, there's your mission. He runs for the chariot. He gets near. He hears the Ethiopian reading. You know, we don't hear folks in our culture, we don't hear folks read aloud much. But actually, in the in the Eastern ancient ancient Eastern world, it was quite common for folks to read aloud. Matter of fact, it was 
it was abnormal not to read aloud. There's at least a couple of reasons for that. One is, it, it was the concept of share the wealth. If you're going to read, share what you're reading. Because reading materials were not that readily available because they generally were very expensive. And because a lot of folks couldn't read, if you could read and you had reading material, you they were expected that you're going to share the wealth of what you're reading. But there's another reason for it, and that is that if you look at the writing that he would have been reading, it would look like this. You'll notice there's no punctuation and there's no space between words. The letters just all run together. And so it actually would be, it's hard to just sit there and read. It's easier to read it out loud because as you hear it read, it's easier to make sense of it. I can explain that by a game that some of you may have played before. There's a game called Mad Gabs. You heard of it? Maybe you've played it. And what they do, Mad Gabs, you pick up a card and it has a, a list of words. Abe, Ann, Ann, Appeal. And you go, what in the world? Abe, Ann, Ann, Appeal. Abe, Ann, Ann, Appeal. Oh, it's a banana peel. But it's when you say it, Aban and appeal. You know, you say it and you read it and they go, "Oh, I got what it's saying." And that's why often they would read out loud. As they read just this jumble of letters, it begins to sound out, and it was easier to understand. So, can you picture this? This Ethiopian has been probably traveling now for a day or two. He left Jerusalem. Having gone there to worship the Lord, he has bought a copy of the scroll of Isaiah, this prized possession. And now on his trip, since fortunately they hadn't invented DVD players yet and in the chariots, what am I going to do? I'm going to read the Word of God. And there as he bounces along in the chariot, he takes this scroll and begins to read Isaiah. And when Philip comes alongside, he's in Isaiah 53, which means that he has almost read all of Isaiah, 66 chapters, roughly. And so he's, he's not roughly, there are 66 chapters, but he's roughly toward the, the end. And you don't just pick up in that day and time, you don't pick up the Bible and just flip to, let's see here. You don't just flip ahead to the end. It's not a book, it's a scroll. And so a scroll, you start at the beginning and you read a little bit and you roll it over and reveal the next part and you roll it over and you reveal It's very hard to just skip ahead. Besides, this man isn't just wanting to peruse the book. He's trying to understand it. So since leaving Jerusalem for over this day or two, he's been working his way through. He's, he's to Isaiah 53, and he is so struggling trying to understand what is Isaiah saying. It's not that he can't call the words out, but he doesn't understand what does this really mean. And just as he's probably to the point of exasperation, out of nowhere, this guy runs up alongside his chariot and says, Hey, do you understand what you're reading? <laughs> Isaiah 53, if you're familiar with the passage. What a powerful passage it is. It describes someone who is despised and rejected. Someone who was rejected of men. Someone who carried our griefs and our sorrows. Someone who was smitten by God and who was pierced for our transgressions. Someone who was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment, it says, that He bore brought us peace and brought us healing. And it says that we are all sinners, but God laid our sin and our iniquity on this One. And this Ethiopian is reading this and just going, who is this one? Is, is Isaiah writing about himself? 
Or is he writing about someone else? What a great question if you're an evangelist. (laughs) Here's a guy who is reading the Bible and says, who is this about? Philip says, let me tell you. And beginning with that verse, it says, he begins to tell him about Jesus. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth. Beginning with this Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Philip began here with Isaiah 53 and went all the way, I'm sure, through the chapter explaining all the things. And there could be no clearer picture of Jesus and His suffering and His crucifixion and how He died for us. And then I'm sure He took Him took this man through the rest of Isaiah. So many things in Isaiah that point to Jesus as both Messiah and as Savior. And then it says, he told him the good news about Jesus. Anyone who will trust in Him will be saved from sin. Verse 36. So as they were Going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Philip said, Well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The Ethiopian has heard everything that Philip has had to say as he's been going through Isaiah and talking about Jesus and he hears it and he believes it and he wants to be baptized. And there they are in the middle of the desert and all of a sudden they come up to water. He says, look, water! Can I get baptized? Philip says, sure. They go down. By the way, one of the strong texts that demonstrates that how the early church practiced baptism by immersion. If you wonder what did the early church do? Do they sprinkle or immerse? You look right here. It says, here's water. They go down into the water. If it was just practicing baptism by immersion, they don't have to wait to find water. You grab a canteen. You don't go into the canteen. You see, it's... But you may have noticed something else interesting in this passage. If you were looking there at your text, you might notice that as I read, you came to verse 37 and your Bible might have verse 37 in brackets, in parentheses with a little note. Or your Bible, you might have noticed, actually doesn't have verse 37 there. reason is because some of the ancient texts have that verse and some of the ancient texts don't have that verse. And the scholars are divided. Does it belong in the text or not? Most of the scholars today would say it was added later. It wasn't part of the original text, which is why most of the newer translations have it down as a footnote. The verse isn't in the main part of the text. I think there's good arguments on both things. The reality is the text, what that verse 37 says, where it says, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized, that is. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The fact is, it doesn't contradict anything in Scripture. It's very biblical, so it doesn't hurt anything to have it in there in terms of it doesn't mess up anything doctrinally. But the other reality is, you can take that out of the text and everything else still makes perfect sense. And so I don't get heartburn either way. I don't think you should either. And some folks go, well, does that really bother you? We don't know if this verse belongs to the Bible or not. No, it really doesn't because it's such a minor thing. What it says to me, folks, is that this book has been scrutinized, analyzed, criticized for 2,000 years. And if this is one of the only things we have to fuss about, what I know is this book is solid. It's dependable. What we have today really is an accurate copy of the Word of God. Verse 39, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. The eunuch goes on his way, and 
The account here tells us nothing else about this Ethiopian eunuch. Matter of fact, no, there's nothing else in the rest of the Scripture that tells us about anything else about this man. And if we go to solid history, there's not really much there either. However, there's a tradition in the Abyssinian or the Ethiopian church that this man was the first Christian missionary to Ethiopia. That actually is corroborated a little bit by the second century church father Irenaeus who wrote this. He said, This man was also sent into the regions of Ethiopia to preach what he himself had believed. And so it would seem that this man goes and becomes a missionary who led thousands of folks to Christ through the years. Verse 40, But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. When you go back up to verse 39, it says, The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. What it seems happened is, Philip goes down with the Ethiopian, baptizes him, and when, they, when the Ethiopian comes up out of the water, Philip just disappears. And it says there in the next verse, it says, He found himself in Azotus. Some people try to explain away it's not really a miracle. I tend to read it and I go, well, it seems like one to me. Seems like he was just there and poof, he wasn't there. And poof, where am I? Azotus. Oh, have you heard about Jesus? <laughs> he just, he, he's, he's there in, uh, in Gaza and Azotus is just up the coast about 25, 30 miles to the north. And Philip just does what he always does every time we read about Philip. He just starts preaching about Jesus. And he goes right up the coastline, it says, until he comes to Caesarea. What an amazing account. Why is it here? I think there are several reasons, and I just want to point out four big lessons, takeaways from the text for us this morning. First is this, God sovereignly works in salvation. We might look at this story, we might think that what this is about is about, it's about Philip who's sharing the gospel with an Ethiopian man. But the central figure in the story isn't Philip and it's not the Ethiopian. The central figure in the story all the way through from beginning to end is God. God is at work before the this part of the story opens, he's at work preparing the heart of this Ethiopian, creating in him this desire to worship and to learn and to know God. He's preparing his heart. He sends Philip, who's perhaps of any of the of the apostles and the leaders in the church, he is probably the perfect choice for a messenger who is eager and who is experienced in cross-cultural ministry. God orchestrates the details so that Phil and the Ethiopian guy meet up on a desolate road out in the middle of the desert at a precise time when the Ethiopian just happens to be reading the perfect lines of Isaiah 53. See, the whole thing was a God thing. For Philip to get there on time, he had to leave two days, probably two or two and a half days before the Ethiopian left Jerusalem. What I realize is that God sets divine appointments. He orchestrates divine appointments. And I believe that God not only did that in this case, God still does that today. No, I don't think that normally that God is going to send an angel to give you an announcement. I want you to go here. I want you to go meet this person there. Angelic orders weren't the, aren't the norm now, and they weren't even the norm in the time of Scripture. Everybody, not even most people, only a very, very, very few people 
in the pages of Scripture are ever noted as having a, a visit from an angel or getting some direct special word from God. But I think that this is partly here to remind you and me that God does orchestrate divine appointments. And I think they happen in our life far more regularly and frequently than any of us ever imagine. See, because I believe that with God there are no such thing as coincidences, only incidences. Think that it's not that God isn't setting up divine appointments in your life and my life. It's that we just, for the most part, aren't looking for them. I believe God prepares people. Even as He prepared this Ethiopian, God still prepares people today to be ready to hear and ready to respond to the Gospel message. Matter of fact, it's essential to evangelism that He does. See, the reality is that the Bible describes people who are without Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, they are blinded. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the, the, uh, the spiritual eyes of the people in this world so that they can't see, they can't hear, they can't understand the message of God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 of chapter 2, he says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Before Jesus, before you were a believer in Christ, you were spiritually dead. See, the natural condition of, of people in this world is they are spiritually dead and spiritually blinded, spiritually deaf. For somebody to become a believer in Jesus Christ is not a matter of you or me convincing them to change their mind about Jesus. For somebody to become a believer in Jesus Christ requires giving spiritual sight to a blind person, spiritual hearing to a, a spiritually deaf person. It requires giving life, resurrection to a dead person. And you can't do that. The only way that somebody will come to faith in Jesus Christ is God has to prepare them to hear the message. So God is still in the business of preparing people and orchestrating divine appointments. And God is still in the business of empowering, of helping His people to be His witnesses. Go back to our mission in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When you and I step out to be witnesses for Christ, we don't step out there alone. The Holy Spirit is with us. I've heard some people say, you know, I don't, I don't feel the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I ask the question, are you sharing the Gospel? Don't expect His help and His power if we're not busy engaging the mission. Because His power isn't there to make us feel good. His power is there to help us to do the mission, to be witnesses. There's a second big lesson that I see in this story. Not only that God is at work in salvation, but I see that God cares about individuals. So far in the book, we've seen the, the working of God in bringing about the the message and, and, and in bringing about the salvation of large crowds and big groups of people. We saw at Pentecost where 5,000 became believers in one day. We see times where more and more and we hear crowds coming to Christ and you get to Samaria earlier in this chapter as Philip preaches and there are large crowds who become believers. But God is not only at work in the big, the big stuff. He's at work individually in every person. You know, Jesus said in Luke 15, He said, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? What I see is that God is a good shepherd who pursues the lost sheep. This Ethiopian was a lost sheep ready to be found and God 
God pursues him by sending Philip. Taking Philip away from the crowds to go rescue the one lost sheep out in the middle of the desert. God cares about the individuals. A third lesson I see in this story is that God's grace is great. God's grace continues the more that we, that we look in Scripture and the more that we go through this book of Acts, we see God's grace will continue to amaze us. It amazes us as He reaches to folks that we would think would be unreachable. We saw that earlier in the chapter as Philip went to the Samaritans and from the Jewish perspective, the Samaritans are untouchable, unthinkable, unreachable. They are they're unclean. And he had to send they had to send two of the apostles up there just to see, oh wow, Samaritans really can become believers in Christ. God really can save Samaritans. <laughs> Who would think? But here this boundary is pushed even farther. You see, when you go back to Philip and this Ethiopian sitting in a chariot. And Philip is explaining the good news of Jesus Christ. And the Samaritan says, hey, look, water. What's, he has a question. What's the question? What prevents me from being baptized? I'd never thought of this until I was studying this week. And I, I realized that's a loaded question. See, it's a loaded question because of who this man is. Not that he's an Ethiopian, but that he's a eunuch. See, you go back into the Old Testament law and it says, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of God. In other words, as a eunuch, there were barriers and limitations in his temple worship. He was not allowed to enter the court of Israel. He could only go as far as the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. I believe his question, what prevents me from being baptized, is another way of saying that, hey, if I as a eunuch believe in Jesus Christ, does that mean that I'm still going to be marginalized? I'm still going to be a second-class Christian like I would be a second-class proselyte or Jew? And I think Philip probably was like, whoa, never heard that question asked before. One thing is Philip knew his Scripture, and I have a feeling that Philip thought, have I got a verse for you? Let's just go over a couple of chapters from Isaiah 53. Let me take you to Isaiah 56. There God is speaking to this very issue. And He says, verse 3, He says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord, the foreigner who believes in, in Yahweh God, say, the Lord will surely separate me from His people. The Lord's going to treat me differently because I'm a foreigner. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. His point is, he says, Don't let the foreigner or the eunuch, the folks who have been isolated and ostracized, marginalized, don't let them say, I'm left out. God says the day is coming when things are going to change. Go down to verse 7 of that same chapter, just a couple of verses later, and there's a whole section. I just didn't have time to get into it all. But God says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house, in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. By the way, Jesus said that. He quoted that verse when He cleansed the temple of all the money changers. I think it wasn't just saying that the outer court of the Gentiles needed to be open to the Gentiles. I think the, the whole point is that Isaiah was saying there was a day coming 
And I think part of the point of this story is saying that day is here. But now this gospel of Jesus is opening the door. It reaches to those who are outcast and those who are unacceptable, those who are marginalized. And God's grace can and will save the morally and the culturally and the socially broken anyone who will see their need and turn to Jesus Christ will be fully part of the family of God. That, I think, is a big part of why this story is here. The Gospel of Christ was open to the Samaritans. Here it's open to the marginalized. And soon we're going to see it's open to the Gentiles. Fourth big lesson that's here is that God works through people. While it's God who is sovereignly working in salvation, this story makes it clear that He uses people to reach people for Christ. It would have been a whole lot more efficient for God to have, instead of sending an angel to Philip to say, Hey, Philip, I need you to leave your thriving ministry here and walk four days, 80 miles down to a desert road so you can, well, I'll give you instructions when you get there. So that he can meet up with this guy and share the gospel. Wouldn't it have been a whole lot more efficient to simply send an angel? The angel doesn't even have to walk. He can fly. And Philip can keep doing his big important ministry in Samaria. But God doesn't use angels to tell people about Jesus. He could, but He doesn't. God could write the Gospel in the sky. But He doesn't. God could make stones cry out or He could have cats and dogs speak it. But He doesn't do that. He could reveal it to people personally in a dream or with a voice from the sky. But He doesn't do it. God has chosen to work through us. Acts 1.8, our verse, he says, you, emphasis mine, you will be my witnesses. Not angels, not dogs, cats, or stones. You. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. Namely, that is, he goes on to say that God is reconciling men to himself. He goes on to say, as if God were making His appeal through us, be reconciled to God. The only way that people hear the good news, the gospel of Jesus, is through us. And one thing I've noticed among us as believers, and I see it in my own heart, is that we have a bad attitude. We have the absolute wrong attitude toward the Gospel. We've taken the great commission that Jesus gave gave us and we've turned it into the great burden. I've got to tell people about Jesus. We've taken the mission and made it a feared drudgery. You'll be my witnesses. Oh no, say it's not so. (laughs) Again, I go back to watching the folks on the news who are being interviewed and called. Just an interview. Would you maybe want to work for the president? (gasps) President Schmedvin. You and I have been called to work for the King of Kings. To represent Him. Paul says we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. And rather than sigh and whine and grumble, 
We should be, yes! God is giving you and me the privilege, the opportunity to be in partnership with Him to rescue people from an eternity in hell and to gain an inheritance in heaven by being able to go and say, let me tell you about Jesus. And God sovereignly works to prepare them because He cares about individuals. Because His grace is so great. And He works through us and promises to be with us and to empower us. Being Jesus' witness isn't a burden. It's the greatest honor and the highest privilege and the highest calling we ever could have. Lastly, I just very quickly want to ask this question. Why did God use Philip so greatly? It is really is such a high high privilege and a high honor. We should be wanting to be used greatly by God like Philip. Just like most of us would be extremely honored if you got a phone call this afternoon from Donald Trump's folks saying, hey, would you come up to, to New York and interview with me for a position in my cabinet? I have a feeling whether you voted for the man or not, you'd be going, whoa, do I have a few things to say to you? <laughs> I'd like to be part of that. It, it, we'd be honored. What a higher honor. So I wonder, how, how could we be maybe used like Philip? I just want to point out three things as I looked at Philip in this story. Three things that set him apart. Why I think God chose that man for this high honor. And in the same way as we see that, there are three things. And there are three things that you and I can emulate, we can follow. And I think if we do these things, God will use you greatly. First thing I see is this. He was willing, even eager, whatever God wants. Hey, Philip, leave this, go here. Okay. Whatever God wants, he goes for it. Philip did it. Like I said, that's not me, and it may not be you. I like to argue with God. I like to say, God, let me see when I can fit that in. I have my agenda. Thank you very much. <laughs> Maybe next Tuesday instead of now. Three things that you might want to do in this. First, you may need to start praying and saying, God, I confess I don't have a willing heart. Would you help me to be willing? Whatever it is you want, I want to do that. Pray then that God would give you opportunities and give you boldness. And then obey. Again, you probably won't hear from angels. I don't know anybody who's heard from an angel. Personally. But, does God set up divine appointments? I think He does every day. And so you and I just need to follow our promptings. One thing my pastor told me when I was growing up, I've never forgotten. He says, follow your good impulses. Not follow every impulse. Follow the good ones. Because it just may be that's God's Spirit moving you. How many times have you done what I do? I have a thought. I should call so-and-so. I should go visit so-and-so. I should send so-and-so a note. And a week, two weeks later, when I didn't do that, <laughs> you know what I find? Oh, <laughs> I, I knew I should have called them that day. And they were going through something. They needed something. They, yeah, I didn't do it. See, I think God moves us in those promptings. If it's a good thing, give a call. Share Jesus. Talk to him about Christ. If you feel that impulse, do it. Even if it's not the Spirit of God moving you, it's a good thing to do. It's a win-win. If you're going to be willing, one last thing on this, be ready to pay the cost. There's a cost to serving God, to being a witness. Philip had hard travel, blisters, sunburn. Expect a little of the same. Secondly, not only was he willing, he was prepared. 
He knew Isaiah 53. When he heard it being read, he goes, I know that. Let me tell you about Jesus. He knew the Scriptures. What can you and I do? We need to be prepared. The best thing to do is we need to fill our minds and our hearts with the Word of God. Take every opportunity that you have to fill your heart and mind with the Word of God. And by that, I'm not, the point of that is, isn't to say, well, I'll be ready to serve God when I know everything. It's not the point. The point is, you simply pursue and keep pursuing, learning and growing as much as you can, and God will appropriately use whatever you've learned to effectively minister for Him. Thirdly, He was already serving. See, He was a proven tool. From the very beginning, he just came out of the gate as a preacher. He just started, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. What was going to happen when Philip runs up aside, beside a chariot with some guy from Ethiopia? We know what's going to happen because Philip always shared about Jesus. If you want to be used greatly by God, bottom line, just get busy serving Him. That's who God picks to serve Him. The folks who are already busy doing it. Father, You have given us the great and high calling of being Your witnesses. Your great grace has extended the offer of salvation to a world, a world that is lost. Father, may we be faithful to be Phillips. Folks who are willing, folks who are prepared, and folks, we're busy. And then, God, may You use us greatly. Not so that we get great honor. Father, that we just have the privilege of seeing You do a great work in saving men and women, kids, and building Your kingdom. Father, thanks for the honor and the blessing of being part of Your work in this world. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.